Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to hold your head up during the holiday season because the holiday season sometimes brings to memory things that maybe aren't going the way you want in life. You have uh, maybe you get together with family members that those relationships aren't the best or you're, you're just life is not going in a good direction or maybe you've lost people close to you and the holidays just kind of brings those thoughts up. And so sometimes you get discouraged and frankly, there's enough going around in our world that uh, it's easy to hold our heads down. And uh, for instance, we have, you know, probably more technology today, more advances in technology, whether it's in the area of computers or electronics or medical technology uh, than ever before. And yet it seems that our world has morally just slipped and just keeps slipping. And uh, or we what we've been talking about in this series, we've been talking about this whole capacity that we have within us to do things that we would say, oh, I'd never do that. Why would I? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? I'm ashamed of myself. And we talked a lot about that in this series. For instance, it just came up recently. I just saw another episode of it. I was talking to Carol about it, where maybe you saw the girl. uh, She was at the uh, Arlington uh, Memorial National uh, Cemetery and. There's a sign of being quiet, and she was making a kind of a hand gesture, you know, uh, and, and making like she was screaming out loud. And her friend was taking a picture, and they put it on Facebook. And, the, you know, the veterans were very, you know, uh, upset with it, as well they should. And um, she got into trouble at her job and things along those lines. And, and I just want to say this to young people. You know, when you paste things on Facebook, people read them. And it's usually not a good idea if it's, it's sketchy and stuff. You might want to not publicize that to the whole world because your employers have computers too and they can look at, you know. My point is, though, her parents came out and they said, that's not who our daughter is. She's being mischaracterized by the press. This, this was a moment where she did something that was stupid, but it's not who she is. And that's the point I've been trying to get across. Every one of us has that capacity. And we could probably look back and say, yeah, I've done something stupid. Maybe not that, but I've done stupid things. And, and, and we, we have this battle. Or, you know, even in uh, Romans 8.28, Paul says that the earth is groaning under this sinful world that we live in. Though it's a beautiful world, it, it's being crushed by the weight of sin. And we have natural disasters. And we have all sorts of trouble all the time, you know, with, with nature and stuff. And it's waiting to be rescued. But in all of that, what I want you to walk away with today is hope. I really want you to walk out of here with your heads up, not because you got things under control, but because God does. So I want to read from Romans chapter 8. I've been encouraging you to bring your Bibles. Now, I'm going to chide you a little bit. I'm going to be like your mother. Maybe I should say I'm going to be like my mother, all right, because I don't want to characterize your mother. But... You know, basically, I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to make marks in it. I want you to read the text yourself. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you really need to get one. And if you don't have a Bible, I don't know how you're... Jesus said this about the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you don't have this, you don't have bread. You don't have spiritual food. So the first thing to do is get your Bible, and then the second thing is get it here. I want to start reading at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. 
Paul says this, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them the right standing with himself. And having given them the right standing, he gave them his glory. Now, here's what I want you to see this, this weekend. That if you love God, and this is the disclaimer. If you're here and you say, you know, I'm kind of going on my own. I'm living life on my own. I really don't look to God. Unless, you know, it's a, it's a home run prayer. It's a kind of a call out. I mean, I, mean, I don't really think about God. He's not in control of my life then everything I'm going to say really doesn't apply to you. You're kind of out on your own. And God will let you go out on your own. But you're going to deal with the consequences of that. But for those of you that say, yeah, I love God and I'm trying to follow him and I'm looking for his leading in my life, there's three good reasons why you can find hope. Number one, the bad things that we struggle with will turn out for good. Now, uh, we have a very limited view of, of how things work. But God's view is unlimited. He knows the beginning from the end. Um, And he is able to work all things out for good. He's not limited in his perspective, and he's not limited in his power. Now, this passage has really been misunderstood by a lot of people. And, 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 And they've made it to say something like this, that all things are good. No. When bad things happen, he's not saying, well, that's a good thing. By the way, and I said this last night, if you have a friend... It's a coworker, somebody you care about, and you're trying to say something positive, and they've lost a son or a daughter or a child or something t- tragic has happened. Please don't go to the funeral and quote this verse. Because unless you can give them the backstory, and unless you have a relationship with them through the years, you are just going to put a, a, a whole lot of hurt upon them. Because this verse is so misunderstood. And, and the other thing it's not saying, this, ver- this, this, this verse particularly isn't saying that God makes good, bad things work out to be good. In other words, it's not a really a bad thing. It's a good thing. He's not saying that. He's not saying, and oh, behind every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. That's not what he's saying either. What he's saying is this. Bad things, when they happen to you in your life, are bad. They're not good. But he's saying that God can take those really bad things that might throw us and ultimately turn them into good. Now, let me give you an example of that. <clears throat> city of Dothan. It's one of those cities in the Old Testament that it would come up and you go, I've never heard of it. Doesn't sound familiar. Genesis 37, Joseph. Uh, he, remember Joseph? He was the younger brother and uh, basically kind of had a big mouth, kind of, Said, you know, and God was speaking to him and basically said, one day your, your, your brothers and your father are going to bow down to you. And ultimately, we know how that plays out if you read through the story. But so that made a little bit of tension between Joseph and his brothers. And his dad didn't help by giving him a, you know, a special coat and saying, you know, basically saying, yes, I like Joseph the best. You know, that didn't help. So one day his father says, Joseph, go check on your brothers. And they were, they were hurting and check and find out where they're at and what's going on and how they're doing and what's going on. So Joseph goes to Dothan. He's directed to Dothan. He finds them. As he's a ways off, they said, oh, look, there's the brothers say, oh, look, there's Joseph the dreamer. Let's, let's kill him. 
They go, no, we can't kill him. Let's throw him in a pit and we'll decide what we want to do with him. So they throw him in a pit and they're kind of going through the options and they decide, hey, let's sell him as a slave. We'll make a little money. We'll tell dad he died and we'll be done with this little brat. That's it. We're good. We're good to go. And Joseph must have heard some of this debate and dialogue and, 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 and probably from the pit, Joseph was praying, Lord, save me, please. Lord, turn my brother's hearts. Lord, don't let them sell me as a slave. But we know the answer, if you read through Genesis 37, 38, all the way through the chapter 50, he gets sold as a slave. And he has some really difficult times in, 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 in Egypt. He has, has terrible times in Egypt. But ultimately, he becomes almost second in power to the point that when his family comes looking for bread because they're starving to death, he's able to not only save them, but help them to prosper. So later on, his father dies, and his brothers are afraid retribution is coming. Joseph's going to pay us back now for what we did to him. And they, say, they say to him, Joseph, dad said before he died, don't kill us. <laughs> you can read through it, but that's essentially what they're saying. And Joseph says, hey, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. But he says this, and it's, it's quite a striking statement. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, You intended to harm me. You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Joseph didn't get his prayers answered. Now, we know the backstory. We don't understand why. It makes sense to us. Because we can see, looking back, Joseph had no idea. All he knows is he cried out to God and God didn't answer as he was in Dothan. Let me give you another story. This is found in 2 Kings 6. This is Elisha. Elisha's a prophet. And basically what's going on here is you have the king, the king of Aram. And the king of Aram is trying to destroy the nation of Israel. So he's coming up with all these plans and these, these ways to attack Israel and to destroy them. And so uh, as he like brings out these plans and sends his men. Uh, the, he comes to find out that every time he does this, somebody has leaked the plan and that the, the king of Israel is, is way, you know, steps ahead and able to prevent the, him from, from being able to do this. So he gets to the point where he realizes there must be some sort of a spy. There's something going on here because he's got a leak, you know. And so he says to his commanding officers, his inner circle, which one of you guys is, is leaking my plans? Every step of the way I turn and we go to do it and they're ready for us. And one of them says, no, it's, it's not us. The nation of Israel has Elijah, Elisha. And this is what they say. He says this to the king. He says, it's not us. He knows what you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. In other words, he's saying, we have nothing to do with it. This guy, somehow or another, he knows exactly what you're going to do. So the king says, okay, here's the plan. We're going to go down to Dothan, and we're going to kill this Elisha. We're going to take him out, and then we'll take the nation of Israel. They, they go at night. They surround the city. Elisha's in, and a young man comes to Elisha and says, we're dead. You know, they've got the city surrounded. We're in real big trouble. And through a, through a series of, of events, I don't have time to go into it. You can read through it. Um, the The marauding nation is brought to the center of town. They're blinded, brought to the center of town, and then their eyes are open, and they realize they're surrounded by the Israeli army. 
somebody in the, in the army basically says, should we kill them? And Elisha says, you don't kill prisoners, let them go. Feed them and let them go. So they feed them and let them go. These guys are so stunned by all that's happened. They go, all right, just let's get out of here. Let's just leave these guys alone because there's something like really different going on here. And they never left. They never touched them again. Now, here's the point. Same city, virtually the same prayer. Joseph cries out, Lord, save me. And God says, not going to do it. Elisha cries out, save me. Immediately, he's got an answer. What's the difference there? Well, I don't know the difference. All I know is that sometimes God doesn't, does things different because God is in control. He knows the beginning of the end. He is in the process of conforming us to his image. And that, that's really important for us to understand. We want an answer to our immediate concerns. And he's saying, I have a bigger plan. I've got a bigger thing going on here. In the book of Genesis, it says that man is made and women, we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And those of us who choose to love God are in the process of this transformation. And that's what this whole series has been about, how God is transforming us and changing us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And we're moving from an old way of life into a new way of life in Christ. But the transformation process is difficult, and it's necessary, and it's not automatic. It's not automatic. Now, we all need this divine transformation, and that's what we need most of all, because here's what we tend to think. Many of us think, you know, my biggest problem is in my circumstances. Like, I have this job. If I could just get the, this new job and it would be more challenging, pay me more money, give me the benefits I need, take, if I had that, then, then I would be, it would, my life would be great. Or you may say, well, if I could just find that one person who could, could make me laugh, challenge me uh, to be all that I could be, be attractive, athletic, artistic, interesting, and fully devoted to me. And I just have to stop for a moment and say, really? I mean, come on, you think you're that good of a catch? You're not. And, and there's nobody out there like that. But even if there was, and even if they were attracted to you for some odd reason, um, you're going to go, you know, there's something missing here. It's just not enough. It's, it's just not there. Or you say, well, if I could just change my past, if I could just start over, if I could, it, I would, it would be different. It would be a different me. And what destroys us is, you know, what, what, what tears us down, what destroys us, what takes away our hope, what, what causes it are not our circumstances. Really, it's, it's from within. What is destroying your life right now, what is currently reaping havoc on your, on your life right now is, are things like this, your pride. What does your pride do? Your pride basically says, I don't need other people and I don't have anything to learn. I know it all. Or your foolishness. I mean, that's what this woman, this young girl did when she posed and did this, had this picture taken. She just had a lapse of foolishness. How many of us would say, you know, I've done some foolish things and I'm still paying for them today. I've just done some dumb things. Foolishness. Or hard-heartedness. We won't allow the truth into our lives. Or denial of our own personal sin. As I said the last couple of weeks, I said, if you downplay your sin or you blame it on someone else or blame it on your past or say, I'll control it or I'll do better next time, you'll never get a hold of this. You have to take it seriously. Or some may be walking around with this foolish delusion that, that, that you can live your life without God. And, you know, Here's what I want to say to you. If you're here today and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job. I think I can live my life without God. I just want to say this to you. If your life is going in a really bad direction and you don't even know it, and you've just factored God out of it, 
how in the world is any truth ever going to come into your life? And what I'm saying is this, if God truly is there and, and if he wants to speak into your life and if you've pushed him aside, how in the world can he? You put yourself in a very, uh, very difficult position. Now, we all have these scars in our lives, and the only way to overcome them is the gospel. But here's the problem. We're all created with this God-shaped void. We try to fill it with different things, and to a certain extent it works. But in the end, we're left empty. The best relationship leaves us empty. The best job it does not, is not good enough. We're always looking for something more. We, we, no matter how high we go up the ladder, we're always looking above. We're, we're always looking for something more. And, and only Jesus can come and fill that void. And, and the, the, the Bible basically says you have yet to live until you've come to know Jesus Christ. And, and, and what Jesus does is he comes into our hearts, he comes into our lives, and he begins to do a change. He does an inside job of transformation. We begin to live. We find purpose and meaning. We find forgiveness. And we find hope. And ultimately, we find life. That's where it comes from. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the good things that he has promised will come true. For the believer, again, I'm putting a disclaimer on this isn't for everyone. This is for those of you that say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. God has given us some real promises. And they are valid, um, and they will really come true. And two reasons why I believe that's true is because he's all-knowing. God knows, and as I said before, the beginning from the end. Um, this uh, passage is, is kind of uh, difficult for some people. Because it says um, he knew us um, in, in this idea of foreknowledge, you know. Uh, he foreknows us, he foresees us, he foreloves us. Um, but this leads to a troubling question for some people. They say, well, if God foreknows us, doesn't that mean that we don't have a free will? In other words, if God knows something and it's already known, then you really can't say that a person has a free will to choose because it's already been decided because somebody already knows that information. Did I just blow your mind with that? Yeah, you have to wrap your head around it a little bit. But here's the point. Some believe that this foreknowledge can be explained as, well, foreknowledge is just simply this. God looks into the future, he see, or, and he, he basically sees what you're going to do. And bas Like, for instance, for me, I was 18 years old. I came to know Jesus when I was 18. I put my trust in Jesus at 18. And, uh, and at that point, Jesus says, okay, he's going to trust me. And then once he does put his faith in, then I'm going to choose him. But that's not what it says. What it says is that God, this foreknowledge and this, this idea here means that is God has a, a relationship with us. He knows us. And that word know in Scripture is a kind of a very intimate word. It's not just like, hey, do you know Jack uh, Franklin? Uh, yeah, I think I've heard that. No, it's not I've heard the name. It's, yeah, he's a personal friend of mine. We've, we know each other. We know each other. It's a very... Uh, it's, it's that type of an idea. It's one thing to know about somebody. It's another thing to know us. And, and basically what he's saying is God foreloves us. He puts his love on us before anything else. It's the radical graciousness of God's salvation. He comes to us because we can't come to him. You see, religion is a man trying to go to God. True Christianity is God reaching down to man who is helpless in and of himself. God's love is unconditional. It's an aggressive. You know, think of the picture of the prodigal son. <clears throat> he says, Dad, give me my wealth. He runs away. He squanders all his wealth. And his dad, every day, I believe, every day was looking for his son to come up the road, waiting for his dad or his son to return. And when, you know, the son, when he's coming back, he's practicing this speech. 
Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant and I will work in the fields. You know, and he's going through this whole thing and you read through the parable and he's practicing it. So he gets to his dad and his dad, you know, if you read the parable, his dad runs to him, which is just undone. You just don't do that in that day. And he throws his arms around his son and his son gets the first for father, I've sinned. And, you know, before he can get the words out, he says, get a robe, get a ring, get it. Let's have a party. You know, he, and, and so the son does repent. But here's the point. When you look at this, the father pre-loves the son even before he repented. The father's love provided the grounds for the repentance of the son. And, and somebody has stated, and I think it's true, our love does not evoke God's love. God's love evokes our love. John puts it in First John this way. We love him because he first loved us. Now, let me give you a very brief view on divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which is a dividing line in theology. And basically, it's this. I don't have time to give you the complete answer, and I don't have the knowledge to give you the complete answer. Scripture, though, is very clear that God knows the beginning and the end. He knows the past, present, and future as we know now. He's not bound to time like we are. But Scripture also says that man is responsible for his choices. That when we make a choice, that we have the freedom to make a choice. But we are responsible for their choices. I mean, Joseph's statement is a perfect balance of this, this concept in Scripture. You meant it for evil. He's talking to his brothers. He's saying, you're responsible for what you did. But God meant it for good. God was able to overrule your sinful plans, so much so that they actually saved our family. Now, he's, Joseph's not saying what you did was good in retrospect. He's saying, no, what you did was wrong, but God was able to overrule your evil, and he was able to turn it out for good, which is what the Romans passage is all about. Uh, God is all-powerful. He's able to deliver. You know, one, one of the things is, as a parent, sometimes you may, have you done this? You make promises to your children and promises you can't keep just to get them off your back, maybe the quiet down, they'll just leave you alone. Uh, and you say, yes, okay, whatever, you know. And you realize, you know, I can't really do that. I can't deliver that. I just made a promise I can't keep. Uh, maybe I, I did it out of uh, a lack of knowledge or maybe just lack of ability. I don't have the ability. But the promises that God has made, he says, not only, not only do I know what I'm doing, but I am able to deliver what I promise. Well, what are some of those promises? What are those promises? Well, let me just say one other thing, too. We live in a culture that basically, and a lot of the movies bear this out, um, basically say this. They say that when you make a choice, you have just set off a, a whole set of, of predisposed uh, conclusions. When you make a decision, that means this is going to happen, and this is gonna, and it's a chain of events. You just set up like dominoes. You can't stop it. Uh, like you've seen the movie, the, the Butterfly Effect, or maybe you've read the story Ray Bradbury or some of the other things. And the idea there is that if you change anything, it will change history. It will ch- See, you, you, can, you can almost get to the point where you're petrified about your decisions. You, you come to a place where you say, I, I, I don't know what the right choice is. What if I make a bad choice? It, it could ruin my life, not my life, but everyone's life around me. It, it could be a total disaster. So you, you basically worry about all that. But here's what the Scripture says. Scripture says this, it says, we're free to make a choice and we're responsible for that choice. But God can turn that choice into something good. You see, we're not living in a, 
in a world that is tied to randomness or to a set plan. Uh, we're tied to a world that is ruled and reigned by God. And so if you make a bad choice, yes, you'll have repercussions for that bad choice. I mean, Joseph suffered the, 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 the repercussions of, a, of evil from his brothers, but ultimately God was able to turn it out for something good. He was able to overturn the evil for good. And it's hard to get your head around that. But what are some of the promises that have we have been made? Number one, eight, chapter 8, uh, verse 31 it's that Paul questions, who will come against us? In other words, who is going to condemn us? Who can come against us? Who can bring charges against us? Well, the answer is, who's the offended party? Well, God is the offended party. We've sinned against God. Uh, we've all gone our own way. And, and, and God knew that. And God, the offended party, sent his son Jesus, who went to the cross for us and died in our place, took our place, took our sin. He paid the penalty for us. Who will bring a charge against us? Chapter 8, verse uh, 33. Again, only God is the one who is able to bring the charge, and he's the one who was offended. Who will condemn us? 834. Well, God is the ultimate judge. But he, And as we said a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last weekend, we talked about how uh, Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus took our place. Jesus took our sin. And so... Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, you are no longer, if you know Jesus Christ, you are no longer under condemnation. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for you. He took your condemnation on the cross. Or who will separate us from his love? 8.35, no one, nothing. We are safe in his hands. Um, and that's important to know. Here's the third thing I want you to see. The best things you could ever hope for are yet to come. Now, it's interesting because when you look at these verbs and you look at these uh, verses, they're all in the aorist tense. I don't want to bore you with that, but he basically says, uh, he chose us, he called us, uh, he gave us a, a right standing, justified us, um, and then he glorified us. And so we get through that passage and we think, he did this, he did this, he did this. And then when it comes to glorify, we go, and he will glorify us. Uh, there will be glory, you know. It's, it's something we haven't experienced yet. All these others we have, but this one we haven't. But he doesn't do that. He keeps it in the same air as tense. And the, the point is, the reason he does that is, he is trying to show us that our future glory is certain. Just as certain as everything else that we've received, it's certain. Everything that he has promised will be delivered. God will never forsake us because Jesus was forsaken for us. And that's very important to understand. You see, there was one time where there was one person who was condemned. There was one time where there was one person who was forsaken. And because he was forsaken, because he was condemned, we will never be forsaken. We will never be condemned. Uh, we share in his glory. And just as Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father and is experiencing the glory of the Father, so too will we experience the glory. Now... That helps us because we live in this world that isn't always fair. It isn't always just. It isn't always right. It's painful. It's harsh. It's mean. It's, it's, um, it's difficult. Uh, we, come, we come in our lives and we, we have a hard time sometimes saying, well, it's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. And you're right. It's not. And we're living in that world that sometimes doesn't work that way. So how do you hold your head up? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. It's kind of an interesting passage of Scripture. And it goes along with the Romans passage. He says, our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them. 
and will last forever. So we don't look at troubles. We don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. In other words, what Paul's saying here is we can either look at how bad things are going right now in our lives, or we can look ahead to the glory and know that this is a temporary thing. And compared to eternity, it's a, it's a, it's a grain of sand on a beach. It, let me give you an example. So it, unless I see that God's glory is coming, um, something that will make my worst experience here on life seem like a minor setback, I'll be hard-pressed to live a significant, meaningful, hopeful life. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say that uh, you're looking for a job, and you, you're desperate, and you, you, you see this job, and you go in for the interview, and the man uh, who is going, you're going to be your boss says, okay, here's the deal for the job. I'm going to need you to work 80 hours a week. You'll get your two-day weekend off. You'll get no sick days. You get no vacation days. And at the end of five years, I'm going to pay you $50,000. And so for most of us, we would say, yeah, I'm not really interested in that job. Right? Some of you are going, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad right now. <laughs> uh, but you, you go, and, and if you said, okay, I'll take it, and you work in that job, you go, oh, dying here. Oh, I'm dying here. Another 80 hours. I'm tired. I'm wor- I, I got to work when I'm sick. I got no vacation. I get nothing off. It's just a boring job. I just can't stand it. And you go, but, but I'll get paid at the end. Right? You're not holding your head up. You're, you're, you're not thriving. You're surviving. Right? But let's just say it changes and you go in for a job and, and the man, same job, same thing, 80 hours a week. Uh, you get the weekend off. You get no sick days, you get no vacation days, but at the end of five years, you get $500 million. Would that change the perspective of that job a little bit? Do you think there might be a line of people saying, I'll take that job? Boring? It's not boring. Are you kidding? <laughs> so I screw caps on, on windshield wiper fluid. I don't care. I, 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 I only have to work 80 hours. I get two days off on the weekend. I never get sick. Who could get sick, right? Why? What's changed there? The glory at the end of the job. At the end of the job, I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm not going to have to work again if I don't want to. Now, again, I don't get my point is I don't think that's good. I don't think you should try to win the lottery because I think there's a whole bunch of problems here. But my point is I just want you to see what changed your perspective. It was the glory at the end. And that's what Paul's referring to in 2 Corinthians. He's saying the way that you hold your head up, and the way you make it, and the, may, the way you thrive, and the way you have hope is there's glory at the end. There's incredible glory. Your worst day, your worst experience, your worst time here on earth will seem like a blip when you get to glory. When you're, when you're playing in mud puddles in the backyard and they take you to the beach and you see the beautiful beach and you see the sand, the white sand, the pristine sand, and you see the sun and you see all of, all of that, you go, what mud puddle? Why would I ever want to go to the mud puddle? Why would I ever want to think about the mud puddle? The mud puddle was there. And, and what Paul is saying here is when you see the glory, when you get a glimpse of the glory that is promised to you by Jesus Christ, 
That glory is sure, just like your salvation, just like you were chosen and pre-loved and, and, and called and, and all of that. And now I have, I have something special for you in glory. There's, there's, there's a reason why Jesus was buried and rose on the third day and then ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. There's a reason why they say that. It's not just to show His power. It's to show what we are going to be. Because after all, we started early in Romans where it says, we're united with Christ in His death, in His resurrection, and in His glory. We can hold our head up. The best things that you've ever accomplished in life the best relationship that you've ever had. All the best things you've ever experienced, they point you, they give you a a, a kind of a little taste of what glory is going to be. I mean, I get tired of hearing people say, oh, I don't want to go to heaven. It's going to be so boring there. Just sitting there in a cloud playing a a harp. Really? you got to read the book of Revelation. Revelation says that heaven is going to be an incredible place. There's continuity between this life and life in heaven. That means it's going to be similar. There's similarities there. Now, the hard part is this. You have to hold on to that hope even when you don't understand. Joseph was in the pit. He cried out to God. God didn't answer. Now, Joseph was able at one point. God gave him the grace to look back and understand why. And we always ask why. And, and, and Paul isn't saying in Romans, okay, here's what you need to do when bad things happen. Look for the reason. No. Because you may never know the reason. Why? The only thing you'll know is there a God, there's a God who's in control. That your choices have make a difference, but they're not going to they're not going to submerge what God has promised you. He will overrule even your worst decisions. That He's in the process of changing you and transforming you and preparing you for glory. That's what He's working on. That's what He wants to do. But even in the midst of that, in all of those trials, what you have to do is say, God, I don't understand it. I don't even like it, but I trust you. Think about this for a moment. And I want to close with this. What if you were one of his disciples? We, we talked about this at our Thanksgiving meal. Carol said, where would you like to go in history if you could go back in time? You know, and I was thinking, I said, you know, of course, I'm the more spiritual one of the whole family. So, of course. I, <laughs> yeah, not quite. <laughs> well, and I just said this. I said, well, I thought it would be cool to go back to biblical times when Jesus walked this earth. I mean, to kind of follow along with his, you know, I wouldn't be one of his disciples, but, you know, he had an entourage to kind of follow along. But then I thought, well, maybe Jesus would look at me and go, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. <laughs> uh, you know, because he knows all this stuff. But my point is, um, what would happen if I had followed him from the beginning? And, wa- and knowing, what, you know, maybe not knowing what I know now. I have no knowledge, but I, I go back and I just experience it, but I know he's Jesus. And I know he's the promised Messiah. At least I think he is. And he's got power to perform miracles, and he teaches like no one has ever taught before. And some say he's the Messiah. Some say he's going to set us free from Rome. And, 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 and everything seems to be going well. We have this great meal together, and then all of a sudden it just 
flies apart. And the next thing I know, I'm standing at Calvary and I'm looking up and I'm looking at Jesus on the cross. And I'm thinking, what went wrong? This is awful. This is a disaster. This isn't what I expected. I expected Jesus to be a king. And now he's dying as a criminal. What is happening here? I think I could have walked away that day and said, I was wrong. But I wasn't. Because what was going on in heaven? What was going on was this thing that I so desperately needed as a human being. My salvation was being made. But I didn't understand it and I couldn't see it. God was working eternal good out of the most evil, harsh thing that ever happened on this earth, that was ever perpetuated on this earth. And what I'm saying is sometimes you don't understand. Now, we can look back and say, of course, that's what God was doing. But think if you were Mary, that was your son. What would you think? He made promises to me. This, as far as I know, wasn't one of them. What's going on here? That's life here on earth. Life on, on, here on earth, God doesn't always tell you what he's doing, but that doesn't mean he isn't doing. It doesn't mean he's taking, not taking things and turning them around. And you may not see how he's going to turn them around this side of heaven. See, we hold our head up because we know there's a God who's in control. That even if we make bad decisions, he can overturn them and turn them around. Now, we may suffer consequences from those decisions. But, but ultimately, we know that he is working in us. He's working on this earth. He's working out a plan. And he's promised us Glory, in the same way that Christ died, rose on the third day, and, and is seated in glory, he promises that to every one of his followers, to those that love him, he promises us that. That's why we hold our head up. We have a hope, because we have a God who's in control, who's made promises to us. And our biggest issue isn't trying to figure out how he's going to make it all work out. It's just to say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I trust you anyway. Because I know my worst day here is going to be minuscule compared to my first day in heaven. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, help us. Because without your help and without your spirit, we can't live this hope. I pray that your spirit would infuse our hearts with the hope that your word drips. The promises that have been made here are incredible. If we can just allow those promises to, to flow into our hearts, help us, Father, to see that we, you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. That you're transforming us even now. And though that we may be taking um, three steps forward and maybe two steps back sometimes, we realize that you are changing us, preparing us. Help us to hold our head up, Father, because you have promised us glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.